Gateway, good day to you. So glad to be here with you this day. And I know that in the state of the world as it is, um, that for many of us, there's a pause in our heart when we look around and we consider the what's happening in our cities, in our states, in the world itself, and we just wonder, like, where where could God be in this? And now maybe that's not the prevailing question you ask yourself at any given moment because uh, there's been enough strain emotionally this season. But I think in those moments, maybe right before we go to sleep, that's this thought that just passes before. And, and today, I just I want to draw your attention to the reality that God is at work. I don't, I don't know how. I know it's not God's will that people are dying from COVID or that evil is, is spreading in the world. That's opposed to his will. But I also know that he is at work through his church, that the spirit is alive and active in Jesus's bride, the church, and that as we come into the space to continue in worship through the word, that it is, it is us, it is you and me that are being called into a new reality. And so as we step into that, I just want to say a, a word of prayer to kind of just posture our hearts uh, to receive God's word. And then we're going to just continue here in worship through the word. So if you would, uh, just kind of bow your hearts with me. Uh, Jesus, we say that you are good. And we say that not as like a perfunctory thing that we just say because we're followers of Jesus or we're considering whether you're good or not and, or, or even just because it's wishful thinking. But we declare it because it's true. And so we just ask, Lord, that in these next few moments, that you, through the power of your Spirit, would work in our hearts. That though we may be apart physically and we're in different living rooms, it is you, Spirit, who binds your church together. And so do what only you can do. Stir our affections for Jesus and help us, help us to orient our whole lives toward you and toward our neighbor with love. So Jesus, come, I pray, Spirit of the living God, stand in my body, think with my mind, and speak with my lips. Amen. So if there was a single word that you could pick to describe Jesus, what would that word be? And really, this isn't rhetorical, so what is, what is that word for you? Is it loving or awesome or powerful or mighty or majestic? Hold on to it, whatever that word may be. Because today, as we near the end of our series in this little series called The Spirit is Greater Than the Flesh, we encounter something unique, something that we've not really encountered throughout the whole of this series. And that is our teaching text today invites us into Jesus's vision of Jesus. And more, more specifically, the word that he uses, the word that Jesus uses to describe himself. And the beauty is, is that it's in Paul's mind. It's how he understands Jesus. And so that is why that word comes to us in our teaching text today in Galatians 5, 23, where we read this. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. And today is quite simple. We are going to fix our eyes on Jesus to see gentleness. And this is significant and troubling because as the great theologian A.W. Tozer quipped, like what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Just let that sink in. 
What comes into your mind, into my mind, when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So it's not our 401k. It's not your relationship status. It's it's not your gender identity. It's not your job. It's not your orientation. It's none of those things. Not that those things are insignificant, but it's rather that those things are pliable, that they're being renewed and reimagined and reshaped in light of Jesus because how we imagine God shapes who we are and how we are. And if that feels like some sort of far-fetched theological sentiment to you and you're like, I actually, I'm having a hard time. We're just getting started. I'm having a hard time believing you. We'll just consider this illustration. So Dr. Andrew Newberg, who is a neuroscientist working in the field of neurotheology, yes, it is as cool as it sounds. You can go read his books, uh, listen to his TED Talks. They're super fascinating. But Newberg has this conversation around neurotheology where he talks about our mirror neurons. And it's uh, th- these are essentially what they sound like. They mirror back to us what we encounter. And it's not as like a, like, I don't think we actually are going to get lost in the weeds of this concept uh, because we've all experienced this. Someone steps into the room and they are angry. You start to feel angry. Someone uh, walks into the room and they are sad. You start to feel sad. And even in um, non-physical spaces, so like a Zoom meeting, there's somebody who's agitating. They're making aggressive comments. Like all of a sudden, that aggression that they're putting into that space, like you start to feel it. Like what's going on there? And this is what Newberg describes as an empathetic feedback loop. That is, as you see this, as you interact with that reality, your brain, your, your brain, like certain parts of it light up and mirror it back. It, it, you start to feel it in your body. This is your biology responding to what's happening. So this isn't just theological sentiment that what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is actually happening in our bodies. The way we think and imagine God informs how we respond to the world, how we mirror him back into the world. And so, I mean, it just follows that if followers of Jesus imagine God as vengeful and wrathful, then it's likely that they'll mirror that same reality out into the world. So too, if, if uh, there's an imagination that thinks that God is really lax, so it's, it's full of grace, only grace, and there's, it's likely there's going to be a lot of conversation about freedom in Christ and that everything is permissible, and so there will probably be some sort of uh, sex scandal that follows that imagination because it's all grace, baby. Like, that's, that's where it's at because how we think about God It matters for how we are and who we are in the world. How we imagine God, it shapes how and who we are. And so just just think about that word. What was the word that you thought could describe Jesus? Keep holding on to it and hear Jesus' words about himself. This is Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and listen to this, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is who we're fixing our eyes on today. 
the gentle Jesus. And if this still sounds odd to you, consider Dane Ortland's words. He's an author who, who talks about Jesus in his book, Gentle and Lowly. And this was so helpful for unpacking this statement. So here, Dane's words here, he says, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. In the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we're not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We're not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, and I love that turn of phrase, letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus' vision of Jesus is as the gentle and lowly one. This is significant. But if this is true of Jesus, like, ought not it be true of Jesus' church? If he is the vine and we are the branches, and as we remain in him, what's true of him ought to be true of us, right? Right? And the simple answer is yes. But this is also why Tozer's reflection is troubling. So this is significant that Jesus is the gentle one, but this is also troubling because our reality reflects something different. We have mirrored a different Jesus out into the world. I mean, I consider the events on January 6th where where people are praying in the halls of, like they're praying in the chambers to that. I don't know who that God is. But very plainly, there is a mirroring happening there that does not account for the God that I encounter in the scriptures. So we've mirrored something different into the world than the Jesus here. It's troubling. It's troubling to the point that when we, like, the world thinks of Christians, the two words that come to their minds are extreme and irrelevant. It's not gentle and lowly. And yet that is how Jesus sees himself. That is Jesus's vision for Jesus. Gentle and lowly. Extreme and irrelevant. My goodness, that is so far from the culture of Jesus's heart. And so like practically, we just have to ask, what did Paul and Jesus mean when they talked about gentleness? What was in their mind's eye? And just to get us started in this, let's just work at, look at the word. I mean, the word they use is this Greek word proutis. And proutis can also be translated meek or humble. Now, we don't often use those words. Maybe humble we use more often, but meek is a word that has just been pushed aside in our vocabulary. It's, it's hardly, if ever, used. And if it is used, it's used in religious spaces. But proutis comes from the Hebrew word ana, and and has a range of meanings stretching from poor and afflicted to laid low. And so if you look at the aggregate, if you look at all of it kind of pushed together, it is this humility, this affliction, this willingness to be laid low. And what this helps us to see is that there's two primary ways that we can imagine Jesus's gentleness or how Jesus imagined himself as the gentle one. And first is as gentleness as an action. And gentleness as an action is itself restrained strength. So to picture this, picture a father holding a newborn child. 
I myself have a lot of experience with this as of late. I have like a two month old and presumably I could do whatever I want with Sai that I would want to. I could, I could throw him in the air. Now that, um, like if you have a newborn or you're around newborns, don't throw them in the air. They're, they have no control of their necks. They're like little noodles. So that's unwise. So instead, there's a restraining of strength for the well-being of the child. So you tenderly pick the child up. You tenderly and intentionally put the child down. You restrain your strength for their good. So gentleness can be an action. And on the other hand, we can think about gentleness as a posture, kind of a way of being in the world. And now this is a willingness to be afflicted or laid low. And I know right now you're like, yes, I love that idea. Tell me more. <laughs> okay, I will. So when someone, and let's just say Jesus, assumes this posture that they choose to exercise gentleness, that they um, refuse to show all their strength because they're trusting in God, then that person will often suffer the consequences in that moment because our culture and most cultures do not reward the meek. They do not reward the gentle. Meekness and gentleness do not have a high cultural currency. So consequences follow when somebody intentionally assumes that posture, when there's a willingness to be laid low. Robert L. Plummer describes this dynamic, the, the posture of gentleness this way. He says, biblical meekness, or you could insert gentleness there, it's that protes. Biblical meekness is usually not simply gentleness and humility, but those qualities displayed with integrity during times of trial. I love that, displayed with integrity. So this is not a false sense of humility. This is not somebody who is paying lip service. And generally we, we see this in, in the church. You'll see it like, um, oh, you did a really good job of that. Oh no, no, glory to God, glory to God. Like that's a false sense of humility. If you worked hard at something and somebody says, you did really well, that was a gift to me. A appropriate response is, thank you. I worked really hard at that. And I'm glad that it was a gift to you. False humility starts to pay lip service to it. And, and it could even go so far as that they play lip service to manipulate a person or a situation itself. That is not what's going on here. This is a display of integrity. It's a willingness to be laid low. And there's a moment I think that captures this really well in our imagination. Now, we'll, we'll unpack more of these moments in Jesus's life, but this will kind of help get the ball rolling. Think about Jesus's arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, spoiler alert here, Jesus is given over into the hands of the crowd by one of his closest followers. So if, if you're new to the story of Jesus, um, the people that he rolls with, like his crew, one of those people go over and they hand him. They're a part of Jesus being handed over to the authorities. And in this moment, the, there's a greeting that takes place that's gonna be the signal that this is Jesus the rabbi. And so then right after that, they go to seize Jesus. And then we encounter this in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 26, we read, one of Jesus's companions, not the one who was giving him over, but a different one. We read in other accounts, it's Peter. So Peter reaches for his sword drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Just uh, stop right there. Sometimes I laugh here. I know it's a serious moment, but like, was Peter uh, just going for the ear? 
Was he going for the head? I mean, this is a really intense moment, but it's just, it's, it's really interesting. Why just the ear? I don't, I don't know. So th there you go. Hopefully that's not too distracting. So there he goes. He draws out a sword, strikes the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear, and then hear Jesus' response. So to this extreme act of violence, Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, do you not think that I can handle this? Jesus restrained his strength. And as a result, consequentially, he was laid low to the point of a cross. Jesus is the gentle one. And therefore, as we sit beholding Jesus, just fixing our eyes on him, the core question is about gentleness is not, well, what does gentleness mean in the Greek or the Hebrew? Or what does Paul think about Jesus' gentleness? Although these are very good questions and questions we ought to consider. The core question for us today is, what does it mean to embody gentleness? What, what does it mean to, to put gentleness on? And for that, we need to continue to fix our eyes on Jesus. Because what we see in Jesus is that gentleness is a chosen approach to the whole world. That is, gentleness chooses, that that's the posture, to restrain strength, the action, even at the cost of personal affliction. Gentleness chooses to restrain strength even at the cost of personal affliction. Like how many of you are willing to do this? Am I? Like this is, this is a hard question. Am I willing to be gentle as the Bible would define gentleness? Because this gentleness, biblical gentleness, it is not in our cultural toolkit. Like, this is not a high cultural value. It's not an American value, at least not in the America I grew up in. See, we've simply not been raised to cultivate a spirit of gentleness or meekness. I, I like can remember distinctly, and I was raised in like a military household, so maybe there's like some odd currency running in that space, but like tears were abhorred because you had to suck it up. Even if you like fell on the ground and you'd like smacked your face. No, 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 austere. Now, th that may just be my unique like family of origin and the woundedness I experienced in some of those spaces and perhaps you carry around some of that stuff. But that was part of the culture that I experienced is that gentleness had no space. Even as you were approached in that, it was like, get up, put yourself together. There's no time for that. But Jesus has time to be gentle. Jesus confronts us in a very powerful way here with such a simple thing as gentleness. See, listen to this description of Jesus. This is Dane Ortland again. He says, meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not rash, reactionary, easily exacerbated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. 
The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. I love this statement. No one in human history has been more approachable than Jesus Christ. Do you feel that way about Jesus? If you don't, consider the word that came to your mind to describe Jesus. Is he wrathful? Is he vengeful? Is he strong and mighty, high and exalted, out of reach? Hear again that Jesus calls himself gentle and lowly, the most approachable person in human history is Jesus of Nazareth. And this is the paradox of Jesus. He is, like, don't, don't get me wrong, Jesus is the exalted king, the king of king and the lords of lords, the alpha and the omega. He holds all things together. That is King Jesus. And he is the one who stands with arms ready to receive any and all who would come to him. No pretense in Jesus. So again, consider your word. Is that how you would describe Jesus? How does, how does Jesus' gentleness confront that word? And as you consider that, let me just paint a, a quick portrait of Jesus from the Gospels. This is just the four Gospels here, and not even all of it. Like this was, I'm like, I wish that I could just spend two hours here with us, <laughs> but it's just going to be a few moments. See, at the start of Jesus's ministry, I mean, this is just, just, just see how core gentleness is to Jesus's identity. In Luke 4, Jesus starts off his ministry like this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And notice that the spirit of the Lord sends Jesus to the ones who have been laid low. Come on. Like, those are the ones that Jesus is postured toward, that he's moving toward, the, the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. Then, in Matthew's gospel, when we read about, like, the summation, the encompassing reality of Jesus' teaching, like how he envisions the good life, this is what, this is how you live into the lifestyle of the Son of God, the Sermon on the Mount, we encounter these words in John, or excuse me, in Matthew 5, 5, we read, blessed are the meek, and you know what the meek are going to get? The earth! Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is the good news, that those who restrain their strength, the meek, and trust in the Lord, they will inherit the earth. It's not the strong, it's not the proud, it's not the wealthy, it's not the privileged. It's the meek. It's the ones laid low. And generally when I read that, I imagine that is me. That is, I imagine myself as meek. When I pause and I just consider the world I'm in, and what I mean is not just like this globe or this state or nation or city, any of that, but like literally the world that Kyle lives in. I often present myself as the most strong, 
like the strongest in the room. I try, I try to be the smartest in the room because I want think, people to think well of me because I need the affirmation of other because I continue to wrestle. Does God affirm me? Does he affirm me? Am I? Like those are the questions that are burning and yearning in my heart. So I present myself as strong, not weak. I present myself as proud. That is, I, I mean, it's, it's a shameful thing to submit, but this is often how I think I like come into the space. And I usually think I assume the space of false humility. That is my pride. Wealthy? I mean, goodness, in the United States alone, just there's like, you can do this on, the, on Google. You can just put in what you earn and see how that maps on to your city, to your state, to the world. Just be blown away. We are like, we are the wealthy and the privileged. That is who we are. Jesus's core identity exposes us. This is troubling stuff. And yet it's also good news because this is what's so beautiful about Jesus is that he invites the weary into rest. Here again, Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, or excuse me, 28 to 29. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I love that little part. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus, in, this, in the context of Matthew, this point in Matthew 11, is speaking to a crowd. But the ones that he calls to himself to take on his yoke are the ones who are burdened and weary. Perhaps you and me, perhaps we are burdened by trying to be strong and proud and trying to hold on to our wealth and our privilege. Perhaps that's what's burdening us. And I think that Jesus would say, if you're burdened by that, come to me. He doesn't qualify the burdens, but he does say that the priority is for the poor for the afflicted, for the marginalized, for the ones who are laid low. Perhaps we are the ones who've laid ourselves low and still Jesus says, come to me. This is the beauty of our Jesus. And just to, to texture our understanding of this, hear how Dale Bruner, who's a leading scholar on the gospel according to Matthew, hear, hear how he unpacks Jesus's words here as we have this like little picture of Jesus. A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need the least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. And you're like, yes and amen. Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear the responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. See, in the context of Matthew, Jesus' yoke, Jesus' teaching, is the Sermon on the Mount. So, I mean, this isn't like Jesus is being paternalistic, saying, let me just do this for you. Let me do it on your behalf. You don't do it. No, this is far from that. Jesus says, learn from me. He has expectations of us as we come to him, that we lay our burdens down, that we allow him to carry the bulk of the yoke. The, the, the idea of the yoke is a work instrument. I know we're not like primarily agrarian, but picture two cows, like yoked 
together, brought together. And sometimes they'll be like unevenly yoked, that kind of a thing. So one cow's doing more of the work. Jesus is carrying the bulk of the burden. That's what he's doing. That's why it's restful to be with Jesus. Jesus, when he says, learn from me for I am gentle in heart, he's, he's like saying, this is who I am. I know your plight. Because Jesus is the one who's poor in spirit. He's the one who mourns with those who mourn. He's the one who shows mercy. He's the one who's making peace. Jesus embodies his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He is the truly human one. Jesus isn't inviting us into anything that he himself is not willing to be. There is integrity with Jesus in the face of trial. Man, this Jesus, so beautiful. I mean, could you in your wildest imaginations ever conceive that gentleness, like restrained strength, that that is the way to rest? I have a hard time picturing that because so often, at least like in, in my generation, there's this like side hustle and you got to get yours. And then once you've worked and labored and worked at a clip that like is killing your body, then you live the good life. And Jesus is just flipping the script. And all of the culture, like all the tools that we have in our cultural toolkit, Jesus is saying, throw them out. It's useless. It's wasteless. It's distracting. It's killing you gentleness, gentleness, restrain your strength, be willing to be laid low for the good of another. Rest is to be had there. We're like, what? So clearly Jesus means something by rest. That we're, that's like another sermon for another time. But let me just say this. If this is our invitation in Jesus, and, and more, if this is what the Spirit of the living God is seeking to cultivate in the life of the church, this, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, I just want to ask, how's it going? Like, would you describe yourself as a gentle person? And quite frankly, like I wrote this, and I felt the weight of that question. And through the weight of that question, I felt a freedom. Here's what I mean. The weight was like this sort of grief from the lack of gentleness in my heart, the lack of restrained strength. And so I think in some sense, if that resonates with you, like we should be, we ought to be grieved by the lack of gentleness in our hearts. Like we don't restrain our strength. We make a show of our strength. We do the opposite. We power up. We give people the cold, hard truth because that apparently is the most loving thing you can do is just tell them like it is. There's no grace in that. There's no gentleness in that. So apparently that is not the way of Jesus. See, roughness is not gentleness. So we should be grieved. And not like a worldly grief that just feels bad because we've been exposed in our lack of gentleness, but a godly grief a godly grief that helps us to turn from those things and toward God with no regret. That then there is where the freedom lies. No regret. See, it's, it's the grief that helps us step into the freedom. And what I mean is that 
is that, the, is that in the grief, we actually see our condition. We see ourselves exposed by the love of God. And although that is like a challenging place to be, I think it's there when we stripped away the veneer, when we like allow God through the power of the spirit to like rip open the veil, to tear open our chest cavity and see our hearts. Remember the heart is not just an anatomical thing in the biblical imagination. The heart is the center of your mind, your will, your intellect. It is the center of who you are. If you tear that open, What's there? Is gentleness there? If it's not, you know what we see? We see our burden. That's where the freedom is because that's where the invitation of Jesus is, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened. See, it's here at Jesus's gentle side that we're invited to be as he is. Take my yoke upon you. Be with me. Come, come on. Come on with me. This takes time. takes cultivating. Come on. Let's go. Like that's the Jesus. Jesus isn't like rushing in there, just getting the job done and then moving on. It's a slow process. And I love how Brennan Manon talks about this reality of being at the side of Jesus. He says, the art of gentleness toward ourselves leads toward being gentle with others. So he's talking about this receiving of Jesus' gentleness. And, and I think more than just receiving Jesus' gentleness, I think it's this, being received into Jesus' gentleness. I think many of us are totally cool with saying, yes, Jesus is gentle. I'll, t- I'll take his gentleness towards me. It's, it's kindness that leads to repentance. I'll totally take his kindness. Yes and amen. But to step toward him with all of this, to step toward Jesus, and the fear that we're going to be rejected is overwhelming. And I know I'm, I'm speaking like autobiographically here and my neuroses aren't yours. I'm totally, that's for sure. By God's grace, we actually can step toward Jesus. His arms are wide open. He's saying, come. Do you believe him? Or do you think that Jesus is lying to us when he says, come? So we have to know, like, are we going to be willing to trust Jesus when he says, come, when our burdens are exposed? I'll take those, he says. But Manning doesn't stop there. He says, He says that this is a natural prerequisite for our presence to God in prayer. (laughs) I love that. I think I I I love it because um, to restrain your strength in prayer, like that that is what it is to be before God. Like this is a, remember, this is not just an action, but it's a posture, a willingness to lay low. In the Hebrew, the, the, the word of like, praying or like prostrate, it's like an actual posture. It's always an embodied thing. It's not just what we do in our minds. It actually means to put your face on the ground. <laughs> like the word itself means lay down. That's the prerequisite for our presence before God in prayer is a gentleness of spirit. And prayer itself is cultivating intimacy with God. I think it's no accident that gentleness is an invitation into intimacy with God. That's why I think this is so unique. We blow past gentleness. But my goodness, the invitation into intimacy? We th- we're tempted to think rejection is going to take place. 
But Jesus knows that in his presence, at his gentle side, intimacy is to be had there. It's a beautiful thing, church. That, that's what the Spirit desires to cultivate in us collectively. I mean, just, just imagine with me. Just imagine with me. What if the word that flooded our imaginations when we thought about Jesus was gentleness? What would we mirror out into the world? What would we mirror out into the toxicity and the division and the, and the malice and the discontent? What would we mirror? with a restrained strength, a willingness to be laid low, to not power up with vindictive spirits, but to be present. Because we have so much grace in Jesus that we can actually receive the blows from others into ourselves. Because we know that at the end of the day, they can kill our bodies. Like this is, this is what the scripture says, they can kill our bodies. And that's it because God has vindicated Jesus from death. As we trust in him, we too are trusting that death does not have the final word in God's good world. Jesus restrains his strength and is laid low. That's the invitation for us, to restrain our strength, to be laid low. And for some of you, you've been following Jesus for a long time, so I think this is the sobering question. What's in there? What is in my heart? For other of us, we just have to ask ourselves like, man, am I the type of person who does share the cold hard truth? Am I just saying, well, that's just my personality? Am I quarrelsome? Do I have a bitterness in me? Like, just think, what is showing up? Do an examination of yourself. And then start to ask, how can I mirror Jesus's gentleness in the world? And those simple things, what am I reflecting out into the world? That, that will help us to imagine Jesus in a fresh way. So church, let, let, us just, let us just give pause. Let us pray. Let us ask for the Spirit to actually activate this stuff in our life. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a community of love whom we call God, we, just, we bring our full selves before you and we say that this is a hot mess. <laughs> And that you've not turned away. We thank you. We ask, Lord, that you would actually help us to see our burdens, to name where we are weary, and to bring those things to you, King Jesus, knowing that your arms are wide open. Your arms are wide open to receive us. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray, as we, as we turn to exalt your name and worship in our living rooms, in our bedrooms, in our car, like, Come, Holy Spirit, meet us with fresh gentleness, we pray. Amen.